1: in 2012 director ang lee and star suraj sharma gave the world a haunting tale of survival that pushes us to deal with our own beliefs in 2020 we returned to a familiar brand at 100 proof the film is life of pie
0: the whiskey is old granddad bottled and bond and we'll review them both this is the, the film and whiskey, whiskey podcast, and whiskey podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2012 film, Life of Pi.
2: My name is Pi Patel. I have been in a shipwreck. I am on a lifeboat alone with a tiger. Please send help.
1: Brad. Brad. How you doing today, man? Dude, I'm doing really well. It is uh, right now. It's a Tuesday, the day that we're recording, at least. And it is the hottest day of the year so far. And let me tell you, my friend. Oh, my gosh. I tried to get out and mow the lawn today. It is just brutal out. Well, then it was a good day to
0: sit inside and watch a movie. And, Brad, I can't think of a movie that I would rather have us talk about today than Life of Pi. This is one of my favorite films to discuss with people. I don't know if I would call it one of my favorite movies ever, but it's one of those major studio movies that have so much behind it, so much to chew on, so much to think about,
1: that it really is a great movie to have a discussion about. I'm excited to get into it. This was a fascinating movie. There's a lot of different themes going on. Um, it's, it's exciting that this movie takes religion very seriously, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that Bob, you've, you've mentioned before that, you know, Hollywood doesn't often take religion very seriously. Um, so it's always encouraging when it does. And Brad, you know, I have to turn the question back around on you now. Had you
0: ever seen Life of Pi prior to this viewing? Oh, no, I had not. This was my very first time. Oh, that's exciting to me. You know, I already said this is one of my favorite movies to discuss, so I can't wait to get into it. And I guess the best way for us to begin is with America's favorite segment, Brad Explains. This is the segment where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just watched, often for the first time. And that's the case today. I will say up front, we are a spoiler filled podcast. So if you have not seen the movie Life of Pi and you want to continue listening, we are going to delve into everything that happens throughout the course of the film. Brad, will you break down for us the plot of Life of Pi?
1: Yeah, so this uh, this young Indian child uh, who is named after a French swimming pool starts calling himself Pi. And he falls in love with a few different religions as a teenager. Uh, he kind of delves into Christianity for a little bit. Um, He delves into uh, Islam for a little bit and, you know, he grew up as a Hindu. So he kind of has these three religions that that define his life, that he he never really commits to any of them, but he's always interested in all of them. Um, And he's he's raised in India and his father owns a zoo. And at some point, some political unrest causes him to sell the zoo and they decide to move to to French speaking Canada and so on a boat to Canada, the boat is hit by a storm, and it, the, the boat sinks, and some of the animals from the zoo escape, and they make it onto this lifeboat with Pie. There's a hyena and an orangutan and a zebra and a tiger, and the hyena kills off the orangutan and the zebra, but then when he goes after Pie, the tiger comes out and completely annihilates this hyena. Uh, and then the rest of the movie is about how Pi and this uh, Bengal tiger just try to survive the the hazards of the Pacific Ocean. Lots of crazy stuff happens. They go through another storm. They land on a carnivorous island. They eventually make their way to Mexico. And the tiger, after kind of keeping Pi sharp and alert throughout his entire voyage, uh, it runs off into the jungle and doesn't even say goodbye to him. Um, And then at the end of the movie, uh, Pi is telling this story to an author, and he tells the author that there's another version of the story where instead of there being animals on the ship, there were other humans. There was a cook from the ship and his mother um, and a a Buddhist guy, and the cook killed the mom and the uh, Buddhist guy, but he, Pi, ended up killing the cook. Uh, and he tells you that, you know, these two stories are wh- one and the same and yet different. And you can believe whichever one you want. And now the story's in your hands, Bob.
0: <laughs> yeah, Brad, this is actually a really interesting movie to have to break down the plot of because, you know, at its core, it's just a survival movie. It's guy on boat with tiger trying to survive, you know, this crazy uh, being set adrift on the ocean. And yet at the same time, there is a lot going on and a lot of the, the sort of like subplot, a lot of the, the thematic stuff is going on in this framing device that you have, which is that an adult pie, a middle aged pie is visited by this writer played by Rafe Spall. And the writer is saying, you know, I, I knew this guy. It's a mutual acquaintance. He told me that you had a story that would make me believe in God. And so Pi starts telling this story of how he grew up, how he got into these three different religions and how that kind of set him up for this journey that he took across the ocean. And at the end of the film, like you said, Brad, I mean, he basically says, I have presented you with a story and I presented this same story to the people who, you know, came from this Japanese shipping company on whose boat I was. They wanted to get to the bottom of it. They didn't like this story, and so I, I told them a different story. And in the second story, it's this much more realistic, sort of atheistic, godless version where people give in to their, their worst impulses and murder each other. And basically says, here's two versions of the same story. Which one do you prefer? Which one rings more true to you? And the conclusion that he comes to basically is like, this This is the same way that it is with God. That belief in God is, is a way of interpreting the world around us uh, in the same way that that not believing in God is a way of interpreting the world around us. And it's a question of which one of these two stories do you prefer? It's a really interesting movie, and it leaves you with a lot of, I think, very practical and, and kind of easy to understand philosophy. And, you know, for people who have not sat in a philosophy classroom, I think this is a really good introduction to talking about religion, to talking about God, to talking about how we interpret the world around us.
1: Yeah, I mean, he even gets into, like, the purpose of suffering and why he went through the trials that he went through. You know, this movie deals with a lot of extremely heavy subjects. And I I think one of the reasons that it is palatable to the common person who goes to, you know, goes to the movies is the fact that they have such a charming lead in Siraj Sharma. I mean, he is just spectacular on this boat by himself uh, with a CGI tiger. I mean, they, like he just really captivates you from the very start of the film to the very end. So I, I'm curious, Bob, how did you feel about our you know, primary, mostly our only actor that's in the film?
0: Yeah, Brad, I totally agree. I mean, I think that the, the incredible thing about his performance, like you said, it, it's not just that he's performing next to a CGI tiger. It's that. He is the only one on screen for the majority of the film. And this is one of those movies like Castaway with Tom Hanks or uh, there's a great movie called All is Lost with Robert Redford about him getting lost at sea where people are stranded and they become the only connection for the audience. Not only is Suraj Sharma doing that at the level of a Tom Hanks or a Robert Redford, but he's also playing against nothing like a majority of this movie was blue screened. So he's he's playing against a fake tiger that's not even there. It's really just an incredible performance. And I'm honestly I'm kind of shocked that he didn't get more recognition, you know, come award season for this movie.
1: Yeah, I'm amazed that he didn't win, you know, a Best Actor award for this. I, I'm not sure who did in 2013's Oscars, but man, oh man, he pulled off an impressive performance. Uh, and and I will say, from the viewer's standpoint, I think this is some of the best CGI I've seen when it comes to looking realistic. Uh, you know, as much as it, it must have been difficult for Siraj to perform, you know, opposite a CGI tiger... I was super impressed with the animals in this movie. Uh, and the the movie it kind of reminded me of uh, most recently that we watched was The Revenant. You know, they, they use this CGI bear to rip Leo to shreds. And I didn't find that to be very believable. Um, whereas I, I don't know if they just had different people doing their CGI, but the ones who did it for Life of Pi, I was really impressed with it. Yeah, absolutely. This movie won the Oscar for visual
0: effects that year. And you know just like you Brad I was really shocked at how well some of this held up. I mean the the CGI animals are just photorealistic. I do think that it's important that we kind of distinguish between how the CGI looks in terms of its realism And some of the more kind of fantastical touches that Ang Lee does, like there's this one sequence where Pi is talking to Richard Parker and he says, what are you looking at? And he's looking down at the water and they show from the tiger's perspective, it like delves down into the deep and you see all these fish that magically turn into like giraffes and (laughs) it's this way of showing how all of life is connected. And and so there's like these fantastical elements at play, but even within those, the actual CG is incredible. Like it's it's so lifelike, and I'm really surprised at how well it holds up. I mean, it's only been 8 years since this movie came out, but we've made advances in computer,
1: you know, imaging, and I think this one still looks just immaculate. Yeah, I I was I really was a big fan of it, and I think that it it honestly helped this film. You know, what one of the main uh, reasons I like this movie is that it really does feel like an ancient Hindu tale like Bob I, I don't know if you've ever read any of the Vidas the, the Hindu holy texts, but like I, I've done enough research and kind of read a few stories from there that like this movie feels like a Hindu holy story you know it feels like a piece of wisdom literature that is meant to teach you a lesson in the end and, and I think that that's what I loved so much is that I, I didn't mind the fantastical elements. I didn't mind this uh, massive carnivorous island in the middle of it with, you know, all these meerkats on it. And I didn't mind seeing things through the eye of Richard Parker for a little bit because it, you could tell that you were a part of something bigger than just a survival story. You know, I don't know how Ang Lee did it, but once the crash of the, the ship has happened and, it, you know, it's it's sunk. From there on out, you can tell that you're a part of something much larger than a simple tale of survival. For sure. And I think for me, it actually starts even earlier than that. I don't want to move
0: away from this framing device too quickly because I feel like that's what really you know, puts some meat on the bones of this movie. That's where you first get introduced to the concept of this is a story that's going to make you believe in God. And part of what really brings that home is the performance of Irfan Khan, who plays the middle-aged Pi. He was a pretty famous Indian actor. Uh, he actually just died this year, about a month ago. Oh, wow! Uh, I think that his performance in this movie is just fantastic, Brad. Like, What really, really makes the movie work on an emotional level for me is what happens in his eyes. And at the end of the film, as he's kind of reflecting on the story that he's told, he starts to tear up a little
2: bit. You know, my father was right. Richard Parker never saw me as his friend. After all we had been through, he didn't even look back. But I have to believe there was more in his eyes than my own reflection staring back at me. I know it. I felt it. Even if I can't prove it. You know, I've left so much behind. My family, the zoo, India, Anandi. I suppose in the end, the whole of life becomes an act of letting go. But what always hurts the most is not taking a moment to say goodbye. I was never able to thank my father for all I learned from him. To tell him without his lessons, I would never have survived. I know Richard Parker is a tiger, but I wish I had said, it's over, we survived. Thank you for saving my life. I love you, Richard Parker. You'll always be with me. I can't be with you.
0: He has this look about him that... You know, maybe he is a guy who's crying because he remembers his friend Richard Parker, the tiger, and he wishes that he could have said goodbye to him. But maybe he's crying because the second story is true, too. Maybe he's crying because he watched a cook murder his mom and then he murdered the cook. Like he looks like a guy that that is carrying emotional baggage and weight. And I think that the subtlety of his performance
1: is what actually brings the whole thing home. Oh, Bob, I totally agree. I, I absolutely loved middle Age pie. I think from the very start of the film, you you feel this sense of gravitas from him. You feel this sense of weight on his shoulders about the life that he's lived and the story, you know, that is a part of him. Um, and I, I really love at the end of the the movie, there's almost you almost feel a sense of redemption uh, in, in middle age pie that when he when he tells the author, hey, like this is your story now. Like it's almost like a sense of relief and you can see the weight kind of lift off his shoulders a little bit. And whether or not that's just him leaving the storytelling moment and returning to his normal life where he has a wife and some kids or if it truly is a spiritual moment of transferring the weight of the story to someone else there's just something beautiful about his performance um and i and i will say i initially didn't enjoy the jumping back and forth the storytelling aspect of it kind of took away from the movie for me for the first third of the movie when when he's talking about religion and going back and forth i i struggled a little bit with that framing device But it did pay off in the end, uh, you know, at the end of the film. I think that's a really good point, Brad. And I want to ask you a little
0: bit more about that framing device, because at the beginning of this movie, you know, the note that I I took down right at the beginning was that it kind of reminded me of Forrest Gump a little bit, like a really kind of interesting... Hindu version of Forrest Gump because he was giving us all this information about what he was like as a child and his relationship with his mother and how these things are going to kind of weave back into his life over the years, and I I really was wondering what you would think of that framing device. So like press in a little bit on that. What wasn't working for you? What what made it better in the second part than it did in the beginning?
1: Well, honestly, it, it kind of felt like Slumdog Millionaire for me of like, oh, yeah. we're just having flashbacks and it, it's a it's a story about Indian people and it's going to be told in flashbacks and stories and stuff. And so I guess it kind of felt familiar. It felt like something I'd seen before. I, I didn't quite think about Forrest Gump, um, but you're right. Like there, there's kind of a sense of like, OK, we've seen this before. And honestly, I thought that his childhood and life was interesting enough that I didn't need the narration for it. And and the constant back and forth kind of, it kept drawing me out of the story. And I just wanted to be immersed in the story of Pi as a child. Yeah. I, I just got annoyed with this constant drawing back into the present. Uh, the, the, it just kind of frustrated me. Even if they had had the narration without the camera shots moving back to the present with the author you know, in Pi's middle-aged house, that might have been better. But for some reason, continually having shots of this you know, random author hanging out with Pi just felt really strange to me.
0: Yeah, I get that, Brad. But what I really loved about what Ang Lee did with the film though, and and, and the screenwriters as well, is that once he gets onto the boat, I don't know if you noticed this, but the narration stops being from Middle-Aged Pi, from Irfan Khan, and it starts being from Siraj Sharma. So you have Young Pi narrating Young Pi's life. And the When it actually finally goes back to Irfan Khan is when Pai gets to this island. You know, he's about to die. There's this really powerful emotional scene where he's accepting the fact that he's going to die. And they kind of land on this island. And it's this crazy paradise of an island that he finds out is carnivorous, that this island is somehow consuming people and animals that wash up onto it. And the way that they convey this is that Pi picks a piece of fruit off of a tree and inside the piece of fruit, he finds a human tooth. And I thought it was the perfect moment to jump back to the present because there's a lot that you can convey with visual storytelling. And I think Ang Lee does a really wonderful job with that, but there's only so far you can take that. And when you see a piece of fruit with a human tooth inside of it, you have so many questions as a viewer. And I think that's the, that's the point where you're you're like what is actually going on here? Am I missing something? And right then is when they jump back into the present and the sort of the, you know, the, the author who's like the conduit for the audience is asking, wait, there's a human tooth in a piece of fruit. But where'd the tooth
2: come from? Years ago, some poor fellow just like me must have found himself stranded on that island. And like me, he thought he might stay there forever. But all that the island gave him by day, it took away again by night. To think how many hours spent with only meerkats for company, how much loneliness taken on. All I know is that eventually he died and the island digested him, leaving behind only his teeth. I saw how my life would end if I stayed on that island, alone and forgotten. I had to get back to the world or die trying.
0: And from there on, you know, the movie's only got like 20 minutes left. So they literally, they get off the island. They cut right to Pi getting rescued on the shores of Mexico. And young Pi's story is over. And now it becomes the story of the author and older Pi. And I thought that it was such a seamless transition back into establishing older Pi as the focus of the story that it that's what a good director does. A good director does these things in such a way that you don't even notice it when they're happening, but it really did. Yeah. You know, I thought it went to show how good of a job Ang Lee did with this movie.
1: That Bob, that's really interesting to me. I actually really didn't enjoy his reintroduction into the story. To me, it felt like a cheap way to be like, Oh, by the way, this is the crazy thing that was happening. All of a sudden he, he bumps up on this Island and there's meerkats and if you look closely there's like uh bones and skeletons all over and he swims in this pool but like there's no explanation of what's going on and so the reintroduction of the of the the adult pie narrating just it kind of felt like cheating it kind of felt like he was like oh well we've gone off way into the deep end so i have to explain it and and to me that that was a sign of like Either the story is getting too weird or the director hasn't done a good enough job of kind of illustrating what's going on. You know, I'm curious why he couldn't have had young pie explain it because he had already had young pie explaining things or you have him leave the island. And later in the movie, when you've returned to middle-aged pie, you have him talk about that island. But for me, it was a very jarring, like, because you're you're on this mystical island and it's this kind of crazy experience and it felt really jarring for me for this real life pie to suddenly intrude upon this mystical experience that young pie was having
0: i think that's a good point i i will say that i still think that as a director what angley did with this film it's one of those stories that when you read it as a book you kind of wonder how could they possibly make this into a movie and it takes someone that's as visionary as Ang Lee to bring this to the screen. And, you know, he won the Oscar for Best Director. And this was in a year, Brad, that was just loaded with great movies. 2012, in my opinion, was the best movie year we had of the last decade. I just want to read a couple of the movies that came out in 2012. So, <laughs> from the top, you've got Argo, More, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, Zero Dark Thirty, The Master, Flight, Moonrise Kingdom, Wreck-It Ralph, Pixar's Brave, Skyfall, The First Hobbit Movie, The Dark Knight Rises, The Hunger Games, and The Avengers. Like, this this was a stacked year for movies. And Life of Pi actually brought home the most Oscars of any movie at that year's Academy Awards. It didn't win Best Picture, but it did win uh, Ang Lee Best Director. And I think that says a lot that in such a crowded year of movies that this movie stood above the rest as as sort of, you know, the ultimate vision of one filmmaker.
1: Honestly, I I don't know if there was anything specific about this movie that like blew me away. Um the the CGI was extremely impressive. I loved the relationship between uh between Pi and the tiger. I liked the comical element of, you know, the the tiger was named Richard Parker and Uh, There's a lot going on in the film that I enjoyed, but but I won't say that anything stood out to me as as spectacular.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. And I think, Brad, that I want to press in on that a little bit when we come back from our break. And we also need to really get into some analysis here. You know, we have these two vastly different stories that Pi tells and they both carry a different philosophy with them. And I'm anxious to talk about that because that's the kind of stuff I love talking about. We'll talk about that when we get back from our break. But for now, what do you say we hit pause and we try this old
1: granddad bottled in bond? Nothing goes better with philosophy than whiskey, than an old granddad. <laughs>
0: If you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, then you know that I am a huge nerd when it comes to movies. But the question is, what are you nerdy about? What is a thing that makes you nerd out more than anything? Is it video games? Is it D&D like Brad? We know you have something in your life that you like to be nerdy about. And for the inner nerd in all of us, there is a place called Loot Crate. It's a subscription service that sends all kinds of different bundles directly to your door with different kinds of themes if you're a fan of the Robots Radio Network, you may want an Elder Scrolls themed box. You may want a Fallout box, a Marvel box. There's gaming, there's anime, there's tons of different subscription themes that you can sign up for at Loot Crate. The great part about a Loot Crate box is that they try to give you a variety of things each month that actually have more value in the box than what you would get buying each thing separately. And the best part is that we, as a part of the Robots Radio Network, are excited to be able to offer you a 15% off your first order with Loot Crate If you're interested in checking out Loot Crate, make sure you use the link in our show notes. Go to the episode that we're listening, the show notes there, and click the exclusive link that we have there. And make sure you enter the code ROBOTSRADIO at checkout. You have to do both things. Click the link and enter the code ROBOTSRADIO for 15% off your first purchase from Loot Crate. All right, so today we are checking out Old Grandad Bottled in Bond. Now, if you are a longtime listener of the show, you'll remember that either in season one or season two, Brad, we tried Old Grandad 80 proof. We had heard such great things about the Old Granddad line. We picked up the 80 proof version, hated it, and then found out that a lot of people thought that we got the wrong one, that we needed to get the bottled in bond version. So we went out and got a bottle, put it on the schedule. And in the meantime, we actually tried Old Granddad Bottled and Bond last year. I don't know if you remember this, Brad, but in season two, we did a lineup of uh, a blind tasting from our friend Bourbon Charity of Bottled and Bond bourbons, and this was one of them. And if I recall correctly, it was not one of our favorite ones in the lineup. But because it was, you know, one of five entries in this lineup, we thought it would still be good to go back, revisit it and give it a more sort of full and robust review today.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. I think Bottled and Bond entries are always very interesting. Um, Sometimes they just knock it out of the park. But a lot of times, I, you know, you just kind of wonder uh, what's going on with Bottled and Bonds. They, they are a very, there's just a large variety in quality when it comes
0: to Bottled and Bond. Now, we know that a lot of our listeners are like us, and, and we came into this podcast not knowing a ton about whiskey. And so, I I never want us, Brad, to just say all these terms and not explain what they mean. So we've talked about bottled and bond whiskeys a little bit on this podcast. And actually, why don't we do it like this, Brad? I have the definition of a bottled and bond whiskey pulled up on my phone right now, and I want to pop quiz you. What does it take for a whiskey to earn the designation of being bottled in bond?
1: It has to be 100 proof, which is 50 percent alcohol. Yep. Um, And it has to be housed in a government facility. To make make sure that it, you know, meets a certain standard uh, for aging and quality control. So there's actually even
0: more to it than that, though. Bottled and Bond is the most difficult designation uh, to attain. It's it's very different than just being a 100 proof whiskey. In order to be called Bottled and Bond, it has to be a whiskey that's aged for at least four years. It can be over four years, but no less than four years. Uh, It has to be bottled at precisely 100 proof, like Brad said. It also has to be made by one distiller. So it's not like a a blended Scotch whiskey kind of a thing. It has to be made by one distiller, and it also has to be the product of one distillery season. Usually there are two seasons uh, for for making whiskey in a distillery uh, year. And so it has to come from either their, you know, whatever you want to call it, spring batch or fall batch. They can't blend those together. And then it has to be housed in a bonded warehouse. So there's actually a ton of things that they have to kind of hoops. They have to jump through to get this designation. I don't really know how important it is for a whiskey to be bottled and bond today. This was really, really big back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, because you could trust what you were buying. You know, if something had earned the label of bottled and bond, the U.S. government was literally saying, hey, we monitored this. You can trust what's in this bottle. Nowadays, it's more of just it's kind of like a sales gimmick, I think. But old granddad is a really, really old brand in whiskey. And so they've kind of carried this this bottled and bond label with them. I don't know, Brad, do you think that
1: it's going to make any difference in the nose, taste or finish on this? I mean, I sure hope it does. You know, this is not as cheap as their 80 proof. And we were very, very underwhelmed. So, you know, let's get into this nose. As I nose this whiskey, I, I'm getting some interesting floral notes. I think that there's there's a little bit of spice to it. Um, there's a little bit of. Uh, the, yeah, there, there's just some sort of like lavendery floral notes that are interesting. They're, they're not blowing me away, though. Yeah, I have this kind of weird combination on my end, Brad,
0: of some really great, deep, dark bourbony notes. Really good caramel notes on this kind of reminds me of Elijah Craig a little bit. Um, but then you have this layer of kind of harsh spices, like a lot of pepper I get on this. And then there's this like top note of citrus, like a lemony, you know what? I remember you using lemon pledge <laughs> as a, uh, as a nosing sort of note that you got. And I kind of get that it's, it's, it's citrusy, but not in a pleasant way, almost like in a really harsh kind of souring way. And that does not really play well with the really beautiful dark bourbon notes. I'm also getting on this. I think I'm only going to give this a five on the nose. Yeah. I think I'm going to give it a six on the nose. I'm
1: intrigued, but I don't know where it's going. Well, let's give it a sip and find out. Ooh, that's not super pleasant.
0: No, it's, it's like (laughs) a tale of two, (laughs) two tasting notes for me. On the front end, it's pretty thin, um, but it's really pleasantly sweet. I get some orange peel, a lot of honey, um, and then when you go to kind of roll it to the back of your mouth, you start to pick up some of that spice, and I'm like, okay, this might finish really well. And then as soon as I went to swallow it, it was like everything turned bitter, and there was just like an alcohol burn. It really became astringent that that lemon pledge kind of note that I was getting at the beginning really comes out at the back end of the taste into the finish. And the thing that really frustrates me is that it's not even like a smooth transition between those two. It's like two completely different whiskeys from the front of my mouth to the back. I think I'm only going to give this a four and a half on taste, Brad.
1: Yeah, I, I get a little bit of vanilla. I get a little bit of caramel on that front edge. But the longer it sits in my mouth, the the more it kind of tastes like I'm just like biting it down on a piece of leather. It just kind of it just kind of has this sour, old, burnt taste to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So what'd you give it on the taste? Did you give a score? So I I think for taste, I'm going to go ahead and give
0: it a four. It's it's not great. Well, and that takes us to finish. And this is, I think, where this whiskey really suffers. Because it does have that really sort of bitter finish to it. And it's just like an alcohol burn. This is one of those 100 proof whiskeys that I always reference when we're drinking in this proof point. That sometimes they're just harsh. This doesn't really strike me as being significantly more flavorful than the 80 proof. But it just has more alcohol to it. And the alcohol isn't even really married well into it. It just really becomes a, a burning, harsh, astringent sort of sensation. I think on the finish I'm actually just going to give it a 4.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. I'm going to give it a 4 on the finish as well. I don't know. It's not great. It leaves an unpleasant taste in my mouth and it kind of lingers. Uh the the astringent burn that it gives you isn't pleasant. Um there's just there's not a lot of good flavors going on and unfortunately there's a lot of just uh, unfortunate tastes on the back end of this this whiskey.
0: All right, so that brings us to overall balance. That's where we talk about nose, taste, and finish all put together. I do not think this is a particularly well-balanced whiskey, Brad. You know, the, the nose promised me a lot of things, and I thought that it could kind of go one of two ways. And the taste kind of delivered on that. It, it was really pleasant up front and then really bad on the back end. And the finish really leaned into that sort of lemony, citrus, bitters flavor. And I do not like that. And so I think that from those really beautiful dark bourbon notes on the nose to what we actually got with the finish, this is not a well-balanced whiskey. I'm only going to give it a 5 out of 10.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10 on balance. I, this this is not well-balanced. It's very astringent up front and on the back end. On the taste, you just kind of get some bland vanilla tastes that don't really take you anywhere. Um, it's not a very adventurous whiskey. I, I, yeah, I'm, this isn't going to get a high score for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that takes us to our value score. In the state of Ohio, a fifth
0: of old granddad bottled and bond will cost you $20.99. So we're at 21 bucks plus tax. I don't think that's a great value. I can think of a number of whiskeys that I would recommend over this at that price point. I'm not really swayed by something being 100 proof because I think we've found in many instances now that higher proof just means there's more alcohol. It doesn't mean there's more flavor. It doesn't mean there's more character. And I think this is one of those instances. I would probably, to be honest with you, Brad, I would probably point somebody to like a benchmark before I would point them to old granddad, bottled, and bond. And I have to wonder at some point, you know, when do we just say that we don't like this line of whiskey? Because when we tried the 80 proof, people told us, wait till you try the 100 proof. When we tried the 100 proof last season, I talked to a few people and they said, well, wait till you try old granddad 114. That's where it's really at. I just don't know if I'm ever going to like old granddad products. I don't find this to be particularly tasty. I don't think it's well balanced. And I think it's just really, really harsh. And at $21, there's a lot more than I could recommend that cost
1: less than this. So this is only going to get a 4 out of 10 for me on value. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead for, I mean, $21 isn't a lot of money. And for a budget, you know, bottled and bond bourbon, you're still not getting very much here. I'm going to, I'm right there with you, Bob. I'm going to give this a four out of 10 on value. You could get so many better whiskeys, whether or not they are higher or lower proof than, than this bottled and bond offering. So I, I'm going to not recommend this and tell you to save your money and go elsewhere. What
0: does that bring your final score to
1: Brad? Uh, my final score is a 21
0: out of 50, Bob. Yeah, mine is a 22 and a half out of 50, which takes us uh, to a 43 out of 100 or an average of a 21.75. This is well below the midway point for us. I'm also not going to recommend. I really think this is an overpriced whiskey. Next week, we're going to be looking at Old Grandad 114, and I don't really have high hopes for that one at this point.
1: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate cuz we always say that we want to come in here with positive reviews and good whiskies. But we're also here to tell the truth and the truth is this isn't a great whiskey. Save your money, try something else. Um a lot of times Bob you'll say, well, this might not be worth the money, but if you found it for, you know, a few bucks at a bar, try it. I don't even know if I'd say that. <laughs> Unless you're just you love whiskey and you want to really expand your horizons and try them all like like ash ketchum you gotta you gotta try them all uh just save your money don't don't buy it all right brad well that's pretty much the final word on that
0: one what do you say we get back into talking about life of Pi? let's get to it Well, that was old granddad bottled and bond. We're getting back into talking about Life of Pi. And Brad, before we left off, we said we were going to transition into talking about these two stories that Pi tells the author. The first of which is this story that we see play out on screen with all these animals on a lifeboat with Pi. How they're kind of picked off one by one, first by the hyena and then by the tiger. How Pi has to learn to survive with this tiger. And then we hear a different story. And the second story is one where it's just humans on the lifeboat and each animal that was on the lifeboat has a kind of corresponding human. Uh, You find out that, that one of them was the, the French cook who was very brutish, who kills and eats a rat, who kills and eats a person pie ends up killing and eating him. It's a very dark and grim story. And at the end of the film, we're left with this choice, which one do you prefer? And the author, who was very skeptical and said that he didn't believe in God, he says, I, I believe the one with the animals. And Pi says, well, so it is with God, that there are two ways of kind of looking at the universe. And I really love the way that we set up these two stories as archetypes for belief in God or, or not believing in God. And I want to talk about what we think of these these two philosophies that are put forth, Brad. So I'm going to turn it over to you. I want to hear what you think. Did did you think that that device worked well? That using Pi's story as a metaphor for belief in God and, and the universe, was that well executed? Did you find it to be, like, manipulative? Was it a cheap trick?
1: Um, what did you think of that? Honestly, I you know, I got to the end of this movie... And he they set this story up as this story will make you believe in God. Um, And I don't think that they accomplished that. Uh, you know, I got to the end of the film and he kind of gives him the option of, you know, well, which story do you think is true? Um And, and it kind of felt it felt like a very wise man type of story to tell of like, here are two stories. Now, tell me which one you think is true. And that will tell you about who you are as a person. I don't know. I kind of got to the end of it and I was like, well, neither of the stories tell me if God is real or not. I think that either story could have a opinion about if God was present through those times, if God was present in that suffering. Um, so for me, the the story was very dissatisfying. I, I didn't yeah. find myself, you know, with the two stories being presented as optional truths going, yeah, you know, these are both really good. Uh, Honestly, it kind of reminded me of another movie that that I I really love, um, a movie called Secondhand Lions. And and at one point, there's a line in Secondhand Lions where a character says, you know, sometimes the the most important things in life, it, it doesn't matter if they're really true or not. What matters is if you believe in them, you know, and I kind of feel like that's where we were going in Life of Pi. That yeah. It doesn't matter which story is true. What matters is what you believe in. Um, and I I don't know, call me a rationalist, but I I think that it does matter what you believe in. I, I think that there is an ultimate truth in this world. And the, the funny thing is, you know, Bob knows me better than a lot of people in this world. I, I think he could tell you that I'm not somebody who draws strict lines around the world. I, I'm somebody who does understand different viewpoints. And I understand that there's a lot of gray in the world. Uh, but I, I do have a fundamental belief that there is ultimate truth that defines what happens in this world. And so for me, the, the end of this story is very dissatisfying. Um, hmm. And it's not dissatisfying from, from the fact that you don't find out which story is true. Like, like, I don't mind that at all. It's dissatisfying that the moral of the story is tell the story that you want to tell and, and and you're good to go. You know, and the author yeah. asked him at the end of the movie, is this story? Oh, your story has a happy ending. And he just goes, yeah, if you want it to, this is your story now. You can tell it yeah. however you want. And I'm like, yeah. well, no, 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 no. Pi's story involves him not only escaping the Pacific, but it also involves him finding happiness with a wife and kids and a job and, you know, life in Canada. And I'm like, no, th- those are real things that happened, And those are important so I I don't know, Bob, I, <laughs> I kind of struggled with this movie's ending.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of good points, Brad. In a lot of ways, this is kind of the <laughs> the Hollywood's ideal of a religious person movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a guy who believes in three completely separate religions all at the same time and says that they're totally compatible. What are you talking about? I think that people who take any of these three religions seriously enough in real life uh, to commit to one of them would have a lot of problems with the way that Pi presents them as as so fundamentally compatible. Um, Because to say that they're all true is in some ways to say that none of them are true. And that's something that Pi's dad even says at the beginning of the movie. And, And Pi's dad actually says a lot of really, really rational things and tells Pi, you can't continue to hold these three competing viewpoints all in tandem with each other. And that's why I think that this fan theory that we found online, Brad, is actually a really interesting one. We don't usually go in on theories that people develop outside of a movie or, or just, you know, the, the random person on the Internet's theory. But we found this theory that said, what if neither of the stories are true? What if Pi was just on the boat by himself and that these animals that he conjured up in the story are representations of the religions that he had been struggling with? And so they paint the hyena as Islam. Uh, and, and the sort of strict monotheism attacking the other two animals and how the zebra was basically Christianity because it was the weakest one in his mind, the one he understood the least. Uh, the orangutan represents Hinduism because that's where uh, his heart was. That's where his mother had, had kind of raised him to be. Eventually, the tiger comes out and the tiger represents atheism. And maybe Pi's struggle throughout the film was with his own atheism and whether or not he actually believed in any of this. And when we get to the point at the end of the film where Richard Parker just walks away so unceremoniously, as Pi says, what if it's actually a depiction of what he sees as a world without God or, or an atheistic worldview that all it promises is life and death and there's, there's nothing else? And the reason Pi weeps is because he, he kind of looked atheism right in the eye and was scared at what it offered him. And I think that's a really interesting way to interpret this movie. The thing I love about this film, though, Brad, is that it doesn't offer answers. It doesn't say which story is true. And I think for people like us who went to school, you know, to be pastors, who have studied theology, when you start a movie by saying, I'm going to make you believe in God, our minds have been trained. We're expecting some sort of rational argument for objective proof of God's existence. Like, oh, they're going to lay down something that proves that God exists. And I do think you're right. They framed it in the wrong way because this movie doesn't really care to to present God as an objective truth or reality. Instead, what it kind of presents God as is this thing that in theology we call natural theology. And it's this idea that, you know, what can we learn of God from the world around us? And in Life of Pi, that's basically what's happening. We as human beings can never know for certain objectively if God is real or not, right? Like, At the end of the day, there is an element of faith involved, that we are believing in something that we've never seen. And what this movie is positing is, okay, you can see the world around you. You can see how life plays out. You can see how some things seem fair and some things seem unfair. You can see suffering around you. And you can choose one of two explanations for it all. One of them is that we are alone in the universe, that this is all there is, that things aren't fair because there is nothing out there that cares for us. And the other one is... There is something out there that cares for us. There is a creator behind it all. There is a God. And what I really love about this movie is that it doesn't want to go any further than that. It's not trying to convince you of the truth of Islam or the truth of Christianity. It's just trying to get you to entertain the idea that there is a story happening around you and it's up to you how to interpret it. And here are the two options for how you can do that. And so for me, this actually has been a really useful film, you know, in, in just my own personal faith journey. Because I think that it says a lot about, you take everything else out of the equation and all the things that we believe about God. When I look at the world around me, what offers the best explanation for what I see? And I think that's why this movie is a success to me.
1: Yeah, Bob, I I, I totally agree with you. I think this movie gives you, you know, if anything, movies ought to give us an opportunity to examine our own beliefs. You know, we we've talked about the different purposes of movies. Some movies are just there to make you feel good. Some movies are there to show you a cool action scene. Some movies are there to make you think deeper about the world around you. And you know, Life of Pi falls into that latter category. It, it challenges your belief in God. It challenges why you believe what you believe and and I think it's a very valuable film. There are certain elements of it that I didn't care for. Even just, you know, we were talking about Ang Lee as a director. I think the moment at the very end of the movie, when middle-aged Pi offers the explanation, the second explanation, the second story. And he talks about the cook and the mom and this and that. And then he chooses to have the author go, oh, I get it. The cook is the spotted hyena. The mom is your orangutan. I was like, bro, it, like, if you don't get that as a viewer. Like then you haven't been paying attention to the movie. I did not need that spelled out for me. Sure. Um, So there's certain elements where I I look at it and I go, yeah, Anglia isn't a perfect director, and there's elements of this movie that I didn't care for. But when you look at the philosophy of the movie, it's something that's going to force you to wrestle with your own philosophy on this world and religion and God's existence. And and I think it's a very valuable movie. If I had to give it a score, which I do, because that's what we do on this here podcast— uh, I would give it an 8 out of 10. It's a valuable film. It's interesting. It's compelling. I think the middle part of the film is where this movie really, really shines. When the narration uh, kind of dissipates and you just simply spend time with the camera on pie and Richard Parker, the tiger, and their their struggles for survival. I think that's where this film is just compelling and interesting. Um, But there's enough other things going on that kind of keep me from really loving this movie. But I still think it's a really solid movie. And it it easily is recommended by me with an 8 out of 10. I think it's really interesting that you found that
0: middle section to be where the film shines the most. Because for me, it's the ending. And the ending is what really elevates this movie from being just another story of survival, a simple tale, to something kind of transcendent. And without that ending, to frame Pi's story as... This is not just my story. It's kind of the story of all of us. I really think that's where this movie kind of takes the next step. It is not very often that a Hollywood movie makes you think like this. I mean, the only other time, Brad, that I can really think of that we've even had a discussion like this is when we did The Tree of Life, which is also a huge outlier when it comes to Hollywood movies. Um, And I really appreciate that about this film. My struggle with scoring it is that I almost want to give it a score based on what it means to me and how much I love and appreciate talking about this film. And if that was the case, I'd give it a nine and a half. It has sparked more conversations than almost any movie for me that's come out in the last 10 years. I think objectively, it's still a very great movie. It's not quite a nine and a half. And so I'm actually going to give this movie a nine out of 10, which brings our average to an 8.5. But, you know, we want to know what you think as the listener. So please, if you'd like to interact with us, if you'd like to respond to any of our takes on Life of Pi, You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Film Whiskey.
1: Or you can give us a phone call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or you can go right onto our website at anchor.fm and record a voice message for us there. Next week, we will be back with our 100th episode of Film and
0: Whiskey. We'll be talking about one of my all-time favorites, the 1944 film noir, Double Indemnity. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.